Hi, this is Mark McCarter, and thanks for connecting with us on Pod Topics for the Never a Bad Game podcast. It's March, which means it's time for madness, and we've got a podcast full of double M alliteration today. Here we go! Welcome to the NCAA tournament. Everyone in this tournament is a champion. Now we have to find out where we stand. The ball is tipped, and there you are. You're running for your life. You're a shooting star, and all the years, no one knows just how hard you worked. Fletcher McGill is is not human. Look at that! Behind the back, it's to the hole for two. Once again, you're listening to the Never a Bad Game podcast on Pod Topics. I'm your host, Mark McCarter. For our new listeners, I'm a longtime sports writer in the Southeast and the author of three books. One of them, A 50-Year History of the Southern League, is called Never a Bad Game. That's what lends its name to this podcast. You can find information on ordering that book at neverabadgame.com. As we've shared in the other episodes, I've been lucky enough to write about some great sporting events through my career with three daily newspapers, the Olympics, Final Four, the World Series, the Masters. Through the years, I've collected more than a few stories from my native home of Chattanooga and my adopted home of Huntsville, some of which I'll be telling in these podcasts. Joining me, as always, is my friend, former colleague, producer, and podcast guru, Greg Thompson. Mark, it's always great to be back with you here on the Never a Bad Game podcast. You mentioned just a minute ago the Final Four. So where does that rank on all of the things that you've covered throughout your career? I've been really lucky and appreciate having things like that once-in-a-lifetime deal to cover the Olympics in China. I'm a baseball guy at heart, so to be in Atlanta to cover the Braves in their first World Series and my first World Series, that was really cool. But to me, the best sporting event on the planet is the NCAA basketball tournament. That even means those early first-round games, that first Thursday and Friday. And Final Four is just something special. been lucky enough to go to the NCAA tournaments for a lot of different perspectives. First, as a beat writer, the team I covered made it to the tournament. First one I ever covered was in Murfreesboro in 1979. I was covering Tennessee basketball for the Free Press. They lost in the second round to a really good Notre Dame team that had Bill Lambeer and some other really good guys. Notre Dame was actually the number one seed in the Mideast that year. Michigan State was the number two seed. They were in the tournament. That was the Magic Johnson Michigan State team. That was the finals that they sort of, they said, really put NCAA tournament on the map between did, yeah. Magic and Bird. And, and then eventually that rivalry, I think, turned out to save in the NBA. After that, I was covering UTC, so I was covered them the year they beat NC State in the 81-82 season. Other years, it might just be whatever the closest regional was where I was working. Mm-hmm. I would In that 81 run with UTC, that was the game that they got so close. They were playing Minnesota, I remember, because I was living in Minneapolis at the time. And Mark, one of the things that was great about that run, as I recall, UTC was one of those first mid-majors that had knocked off a big-time team and took Minnesota the absolute limit in that game. 
Oh yeah, the '80-'81 season was the first year they made the NCAA tournament as a Division One team and lost to Maryland in Dayton. Really good Maryland team. The next year, that team was just it was sensational. Nick Morgan, Russ Shaney, Willie White, Chris McRae, Stanley Lawrence. Skip Clark, just a really, really good, deep, talented basketball team. And Murray Arnold was a terrific coach. They went 27-4. They beat some teams early in the year non-conference. I think they gave them some confidence. And then just tore through the Southern Conference. And then, as you say, got to the NCAAs, drew North Carolina State with Jim Valvano as the head coach in the first round and upset NC State. That really set things going. That sort of put Chattanooga up there as an early Gonzaga, one of those mid-majors you always had to watch. And Minnesota, that game was in Indianapolis, and Chattanooga had a fairly easy shot late in the game on the baseline that just went in and out that would have beat Minnesota. People who watched that game may be as biased as I am to that team might also say that uh, it was tough beating seven guys there for a while late in the end of the game. There were yeah. some bad calls that went against Chattanooga that still break your heart. It should never have come down to a last shot. And I recall that Minnesota team had, I think, Trent Tucker on it, had Randy Brewer. It goes 40 years ago, so memory's a little bit hazy during that time. But I wanted to ask you about the fact that you know, you're covering a team, and I know that as sports writers, you and Weedmer talked about this in the previous podcast, you don't necessarily root for a particular team. Well, when you're a beat writer and you're from Chattanooga and they're playing NC State and they got a chance to win, talk about the excitement of covering that and then the responsibility of bringing a story like that back and bringing that alive to the city that is wrapped in that mid-major taking on the Goliath. I really always prided myself. I don't think I rooted for that name on the front of the jersey. But when you get to know the players as well as I was able to, I was traveling with them on the bus, I was at every practice. You get to know those guys and you can't help start to want good things for these kids that you've come to be fond of. One of the best for them, certainly you root for good stories, and certainly the better a team is, the more people are going to be interested in what you're covering, the more people read your stories, and you always want that as a writer, more readers you can draw. To go to a game like that, yeah, you're rooting inside, boy, you hope they do well, and you get mad inside when a referee poses them on a call against Minnesota, but you're not cheering on press row. I kept these just ridiculous play-by-play stats during a game that kept me busy, and I wasn't sitting there watching and rooting. I was really, I think, always had my game face on. But certainly, you're around a program, around people that your course of basketball season, you see as much as you see your own family. So, yeah, it's fun to be a part of that. I guess I even got better appreciation for that later on because – like when I moved to Alabama and I would go to NCAA tournaments and cover an Auburn team or an Alabama team, especially in NCAA tournaments. And it's fun. It's always fun going there, but you're never able to be as close to the coaches and players as I was then. Great memories of going to NCAA with Alabama. I traveled with them when they went to the West Coast and played at Long Beach. I was right there on the baseline. It was the year that Loyola Marymount had Hank Gathers and, and Gathers had died. And I'm 30 feet away from Bo Kimball who shoots left-handed free throws in honor of Hank Gathers. Those are the kind of chill butt moments you get covering an NCAA, whether it's your team or not. As you talked about that, I actually did get chill bumps remembering Bo Kimball shooting those left-handed free throws. You are one of those folks that had the opportunity to cover the NCAA and attend it, and it has changed so much in the last 20 years, 40 years going back to 81, but just in the last 30, 20 years or so, 
It has really changed since CBS and TBS have put in a billion or so dollars into this. It is a big, big, big deal. The bracket thing has been kind of nuts, but all of that came to a halt. As we're talking now, it's early March, and as you'll recall, I believe that we are in conference tournaments, and then everything stopped. COVID happened, and then the NCAA tournament did not happen. They didn't go to Indianapolis. Everything was suspended, and so now, as things have cycled through, you do have an NCAA tournament that is about to happen. Yeah, and it's going to be really strange circumstances. It's going to be teams bubbled up, but it looks as if it's going to happen. And as I've said, it's the greatest sporting event on the planet to me. And I was lucky enough to see it from a sports writer perspective. But we're really lucky to have a guest today who has seen the Final Four from a much better perspective than we have. Indeed, we are. And somebody that you've known for a number of years, and I had a chance to work with a little bit in Chattanooga and get to know really great guy and somebody who knows basketball inside and out. Oh, yeah. When I covered basketball for the Free Press, I covered a lot of Vanderbilt home games. I always loved going to Vandy. It was such a family atmosphere up there. I got to know all the players and their families. And One of my favorite people in the business was this sweet, sweet lady named Dot Dethridge. And Dot was Coach Newton's administrative assistant. So I had to call Coach Newton a couple of times a week. I'd always go through Ms. D. And she was just incredible. I took my daughter up there to games, and Ms. D would say, well, let her just sit with me. That'll be fine. So I always teased and joked around Ms. D. And one day she finally says, you're just like this other guy who calls up here all the time, and your names are just about alike. He's an assistant coach down at Auburn. He's got named Mac McCarthy. And I told her, I said, well, I knew Sonny really well, but I didn't know this Mac guy at all. But you know, maybe one of these days I'd run into him. So who knew? 1985, Mac McCarthy becomes head basketball coach at UT Chattanooga. I was at the press conference that day, wrote one of the stories, and I've been proud to call Mac a friend ever since. And I think Ms. D was probably more right than either of us wants to care that, or wants to admit <laughs> that, that we were a lot alike. Mac won eight Southern Conference record championships in 12 years at UTC, took his team to the five NCAA tournaments, won two-thirds of his games at UTC. Since his retirement from coaching, he's done some broadcast work, recently wrote a book that's called What I'm About to Tell You is the Truth or Could Be my accidental career path. But it does any good, but I'm holding it up and having my copy here with me right now. Proud of my friendship and appreciate my friendship with Mac McCarthy and really glad he's joined us today. So hello, Mac. Mark, Greg, it's good to be with you. I am so glad you brought up Dot Deathridge. And I have to tell you right away, I used to call all around to the SEC offices when I was going to go scout and talk to the other basketball secretaries and I called Dot Dethridge, not knowing Dot Dethridge. I called the Vanderbilt office to get a pass and let them know I'm coming to scout a game. She picks up the phone and says, Vanderbilt basketball. And she says, may I ask who's calling? And I said, Adolph Rupp. She didn't hesitate a bit. She said, my goodness, this is long distance. <laughs> and we became best friends. We became oh. best friends. She was such a sweet, <laughs> sweet lady. Well, I got a lot I want to talk to you about, but let's start with the book. I know you were obviously inspired by all the great writing talent that was around you during your coaching days, but what inspired this book and how can folks get it? Well, a couple things. I went to college thinking I was going to be a sports writer. I knew I wanted to do something with sports, but really my focus was on maybe being a sports writer. And Virginia Tech just never really have a journalism major, and I wasn't interested in being an English major, and things fell the way they fell. 
but it always intrigued me. I loved doing it. I wrote for a newspaper, a daily newspaper in high school and college. I was the sports editor of a weekly paper for a couple different summers where they kind of focused on sports, where they didn't do much in the winter. And I always kind of felt drawn to writing. Even in coaching, I signed two or three contracts to write books, but they were more instructional books. By the time I really got going on any of them, I'd moved on to another job. So I'd never had that chance. So when COVID struck and there was no live sports on TV, I finally just said, hey, I'm going to do this. Fortunately, a young lady in our neighborhood who had interviewed me for one of her books, she's written about 12 sports books, was a sports writer in Charlotte for a long time. She had interviewed me for one of her books, so I went to her with the idea, and she kind of talked me through the process, and the rest is history. The writing was the easy part. I should have known that from some of you guys that I hung around with. I should have known writing <laughs> wasn't that hard. The printing and publication was a whole different deal. And, of course, selling it was a whole different deal. But I had so much fun reliving all those memories, reaching out to people, researching and going back and remembering exactly how things happened. I just had a ball, and it's gone great. I'm just selling to myself at MacMcCarthy.com. And even that part's gone okay. People said, how many did you sell? I said, well, more than I thought. I would and less than I hoped I would. And that's all I need to know. That's a line for all of us. All authors, <laughs> I believe. The guy who wrote the foreword was some guy named Charles Barkley. Just take us back to how long you've known Charles and how that developed. You coached him at Auburn. You all stayed great friends. He was huge when you went to Virginia Commonwealth, just supporting your program there. Yeah, Charles and I have had an unusual relationship in that we've gotten much, much closer as the years went on. And maybe that's normal, but when we signed Charles, we knew we had something that could be special, but we had no idea that he was going to be a lottery pick and a top 50 all-time NBA player. We did not know that. But we also knew that, that he was going to be a challenge. So our relationship started out kind of contentiously because my wife and I, Jean, we literally said to sell our house and move into the athletic dorm to supervise him and literally walk him to class some days and walk him through the classes some days. And Charles will tell you right now, when he introduces me today, if we're in a crowd and he introduces me to somebody, he said, in college, I hated this man. I hated this person. But now, in retrospect, he understands what we were trying to do and how we were trying to do it. There's nothing he wouldn't do for any of us. He's great about staying in touch. He did fundraising for us at VCU. And when I reached out to him and asked him about the forward, he immediately said yes, which he does immediately say yes a lot of times, when he really doesn't mean it. But this time, he really did mean it. It took him a while to get it done, but he finally sent it and said, tell me how this works. And I said, hey, I don't even have to read it. It works fine. I appreciated him doing it. He really wanted to do it. I was partially surprised that at some point he didn't say, just write it and just say I wrote it. But he really honestly wanted to do it himself and put it in his own words, which I really appreciated. Does his success as a broadcaster surprise you at all? The fact that he has stuck with it sort of surprises me. And you know him. You guys have been around him. The great thing about Charles is that's who he is. He's no different whether he's at the gym at Baylor or playing golf at the Honors or hanging out at Shuford's Barbecue or on the set of TNT. He's the same guy 
all the time. And I think that's what makes him successful. He doesn't pretend to put on airs. He struggled a little bit when he first started doing the CBS NCAA stuff. But as soon as he relaxed and went about being Charles Barkley, he was the star of that show too. Like I said, I'm surprised he continues to do it, but I'm not surprised he's really good at it at all. Catch us up on what you've been doing lately. I know you've done some broadcast work. And catch me up on the girls, on Gene and your daughter Katie. <laughs> it's been an adventure. When I got out of coaching, I jumped into administration, which kind of felt like a natural thing. And working for Terry Holland at East Carolina was a lot of fun. He let me be involved in a lot of different things, whether it be conference expansion or changing leagues, hiring people. He let me be involved with a lot of creative things. But when they changed ADs, I didn't enjoy it as much. So I said, hey, I called Shane Neal, one of my former players, and said, I'm thinking about retiring. And Shane said, well, let me look at the things and he came back and said yeah you can do that so I did and then the phone started ringing off the hook for doing television again I had done two years full-time for ESPN regional which became ESPNU back in the day when I left BCU and then got back into coaching maybe I should have stayed in television but I had such a good time and all of a sudden I was working for American Sports Network for some of the ESPN platforms now I do stuff with the ACC Network Extra I'm doing some flow sports this coming weekend at the CAA tournament. I've been averaging 35 to 45 games a year, which is fun. I continue to do a radio show in Chattanooga. I do one in Florida. I do one in Richmond. I do one here in town, kind of part-time. But we've just been traveling and enjoying ourselves. And Jean retired before I did, and she kind of built the house here. We've been in our house here in Greenville, which we built 15 years ago, this is the longest we've ever been anywhere. We're kind of comfortable here, got great neighbors. We're an hour from the beach. I'll wake up in the morning, there'll be a note on my side of the bed saying, gone to the beach, I'll see you at dinner time." And Gene likes that part of it an awful lot. And our daughter Katie's done great. She went to UVA undergrad, worked in Washington, D.C. for a while, decided she wanted to get back into something that she really loved as an architectural historian, went back, got her master's from UVA, and now works for a really neat architectural historian firm in Fredericksburg, Virginia. She's doing great. We were talking today about a young McCarter lady babysitting for her up on the Signal Mountain. That just makes Jordan feel so old. Every time I bring that up, showed her the book, and you even made note in the inscription that was really cool about Jordan babysitting Katie. Again, makes my daughter feel really old. Uh, she's right. done great, too. PhD yep. and everything else. Almost there. All right, goofy basketball season. Gonzaga is clearly looks like everybody's number one. NCAA's try to make this as normal a season as possible, but it hasn't been. What strikes you when you think about this season, and especially with tournament time now rolling around? Well, there are a lot of things that strike me about how not normal it is, clearly, but there are a couple of things that stand out. Just the inconsistency in play has been just unbelievable. And I think that's due to a lot of things. Normally, kids come in, some of them come in at the semester, certainly all of them come in in the summertime. This year, there was no spring, there was no summer. For a lot of teams, there was no fall. There were no international trips to bond. There was no preseason. There were no scrimmages. There were no exhibitions. And for a lot of leagues and teams, there were no real non-conference schedules of any significance. The multi-team events didn't happen very much. There was a smattering of them around, but not many. 
so I'm not surprised by the inconsistency. Uh, one thing that I think has caught everybody by surprise is the lack of performance of the quote-unquote blue bloods from Duke and Carolina and Indiana and Kansas and Michigan State and UCLA. And they've all had their moments. But for the most part, those schools have not done well. And a lot of it is due to the one and done. So those young kids didn't have a chance to be on campus and mature. And they're really late blooming. So that's been something that has struck me. And of course, everybody understood March Madness has to happen. The NCAA cannot afford financially, and the schools honestly can't afford financially for the March Madness not to happen. So everything has been geared toward that happening. We'll do what we can during the regular season. The amount of flexibility and adaptability has been amazing. Folks have shown nimbleness that they never would have shown under ordinary circumstances. One thing I just hate is that the kids haven't had a great experience. Now, playing, I'm sure, has been a pleasant surprise, and playing as many games is a pleasant surprise, but they haven't had the normal college experience that we all love so much and cherish and appreciate. It certainly has been memorable. I know it'll have an asterisk by it, but I am pleasantly surprised that we've reached the number of games played that we have. And my fingers are crossed that we can get through March Madness with a minimum of disruptions and forfeits and actually have a March Madness that we'll look forward to that one shiny moment on that final night. So is Gonzaga the team that shines that last night? (laughs) Every year, it seems like there are some folks that just can't miss. And everybody says, well, it's Gonzaga and Baylor. Well, Baylor's lost a couple now. And well, maybe it's Michigan. But the one consistent one has been Gonzaga. And they've got a veteran team, an older team. And that has been something that's been interesting to watch. There was a time, and I don't know whether it's in effect right this moment, but there were two or three weeks ago, the top 10 teams the starters among the top 10 teams, so that's 50 starters, 42 of them were veteran players. There weren't that many new faces on those teams that were stuck there in the top 10. And I think older teams have a real advantage here going forward because nothing much bothers those old guys who've been through everything. Mark and Mac, if I could pop in for just a moment and remind everybody here that you're listening to the Never a Bad Game podcast on Pod Topics. I'm Greg Thompson, once again riding shotgun with your Never a Bad Game podcast host, Mark McCarter. And in this edition of the podcast, we're talking with Mac McCarthy, who lifted the UT Chattanooga men's basketball program to new heights during his time as the Mox head coach. Now, before we get back into talking college basketball and March Madness with Mac, we'd like to take this opportunity to remind our listeners that Mac is the author of of a new book looking back at what was a great career in the game of basketball. You can order your copy of Mac's book entitled, What I'm About to Tell You Is the Truth or Could Be My Accidental Career Path, and that is available for sale online through Mac's website, macmccarthy.com. That web address again is macmccarthy.com. Now let's rejoin the conversation on this edition of the Never a Bad Game podcast with the Eminem Boys, Mac McCarthy, and your podcast host, Mark McCarter. You went to five tournaments. What's it like once you get that NCAA bid secured? When you get that phone call, you see your school pop up on TV. There's not a lot of sleep the next few weeks, I guess, but just take us through sort of the inside of of what head coach has to deal with once that bid is secured. 
of course, it depends a little bit on kind of what level you're at. When you're at a mid-major where you're only going to get one bid, it's so hard to do. The other thing that happens when you're at a mid-major is generally you play your tournament a week early. So you've got a longer period of time to wait. So it's not quite as intense as some of the teams that play on Selection Sunday or even Saturday night. And you've got that short window of compressed time. When you're a mid-major and you know you're going to be a 13 or 14 or 15 or probably a 16 seed, you know pretty much who you're going to play. So you start working on those kind of things. Coaches are just like the kids. The first time I went as a head coach, yeah, we were excited, but we were actually happy to be going. We had finished fifth in 1988. We had finished fifth during the regular season, the worst year we had when I was at Chattanooga, but won the tournament. So we were genuinely just happy to be going, and we were going to try to win and play our best, but that changed over the course of time. As we got to going more and more regularly, there got to be a comfort level where we went with a different purpose in mind. We went with really focused on, hey, we can win. And we honestly had some really good teams, maybe as good or better than the team that went to the Sweet 16 that went to the NCAA, but we got some bad draws, and some of it is the luck of the draw. But when you draw Kansas when they got beaten their tournament they got shipped out to Kentucky in the southern region or you get Connecticut when they get beaten their tournament and they ship them to Utah out in the west and we had some draws that weren't really favorable we had the number one overall seed in 88 with Oklahoma with Stacy King and Mookie Blaylock and Ricky Grace and all those guys one of the grants and everybody else so we didn't have great draws but finally we had been there enough we had a mature team the team that went to the Sweet 16 we had five fifth-year guys. We had an older team, and we got a good draw against Georgia, and Illinois was very similar to them. And next thing you know, we're playing in Birmingham in the Sweet 16 with a chance to advance. I can't even describe the experience, Mark. 96, 97, you talked about how you guys had the week off. And you wrote about this in the book. The Sunday when the Sweet 16 was announced, a bunch of us were actually at the NASCAR race in Atlanta. We were in Herb Adcox's suite. I think Sonny was there. There was one weekend where we almost had a slumber party. We were all piled out on sofas and couches and all over the place. But that day, after the bid came in, I think it was Mr. A had arranged for you, put you on a private plane right out of the Speedway Airport back to Chattanooga to be able to do the press stuff and get ready once the announcement was made. I wound up driving your car back home that night. And, uh, but I got to your house, dropped it off. You were living over there on the other side of the river, just below GPS. And I remember coming to your house, and we were hanging out there for a few minutes, and you said, we're going to beat Georgia. And I just kind of looked at you strange, which I did a lot anyway. <laughs> but you said, and this is something I learned a lot from Frank Kearns before you came along, and then a lot more from you even. Basketball is so much about matchups. It's not always the talent. It's the way you match up. And you knew that very night that you guys matched up great against Georgia. Yeah, we really did. And it is so much about matchups. For instance, Kansas had Pollard and Ostertag. They had these huge people that we just couldn't match up with, had no chance. And even though we had a really, really good team with Copeland and Bourne and everybody else, we just couldn't compete with those guys. That day at the race was unbelievable. You probably remember all this because you're into racing like I am. There was a fiery crash. They had just reconfigured the track. Tony Stewart was caught up in a crash. And if you remember, Tony's mom was in the suite with us. They rushed her out of there to go to the infield care center to make sure he was okay. But it happened where there had to be a huge cleanup. So we left right that moment. Somebody took us in a golf cart, I don't remember who, over to the plane. 
We got to the winter sports bar or whatever it was called back then, the boathouse now, I think. We got there. We didn't miss a green flag lap. We <laughs> we got back before they got the race restarted. It was unbelievable. It was like the perfect day for a NASCAR basketball junkie like me. So we did not miss a single lap of the race because of all the generosity of Mr. A. <laughs> that is good. 96-97 team, as you said, you had other teams with better records. What made that one special? Well, one thing was the age. That made a difference. One thing was when you've got a lottery pick like Johnny Taylor who can compete against anybody, it gives everybody else a level of confidence. But there were so many things that came together. You had a Wes Moore who literally was a walk-on who never turned the ball over. People don't understand his assist-to-turnover ratio was the best in the country. He just never turned it over. And it's not something you notice while you're watching the game until you look at the stats. And then we had a decent size with Mims and Collier. And it was just a whole unique situation. And again, the matchup that we talked about, and that was the fourth time in five years we had been. Now, not all those players had been, but the program had been. We felt like we belonged. And that made a huge difference. And of course, the way the season went, a lot of folks don't remember when we started league play, I think we were four and seven. I think we had like one Division One win, maybe, or two Division One wins going into league play at the most. We had had to totally revamp things. And you know, because you read the book, it was so weird losing to John Beeline, who was at Canisius in the Coca-Cola Classic, Dr. Pepper Classic, I guess it was at that time, kind of turned our season around. We went back and changed everything that we did. And because we had a mature team, they accepted that and bought into it. And we win the next 11 games. And like you say, the rest is history. But it was so weird that Beeline turned our season around. Pete Gillen ended our season in the Sweet 16 when he was at Providence. And the next year, I'm at VCU. Beeline is at the University of Richmond. And Gillen is 40 miles up the road at the University of Virginia. It's just too weird to even make up. It was great. And I was just living in Chattanooga at the time. I was working for Creative Resources. We even did that video on that season, the Sweet 16 run. Somehow the Academy Award Committee overlooked it. but it was. I think it was JR's fault. I think the production was great. I think it was JR. And we had Dennis Haskins doing the intro, which I always thought was great. Dennis we sure did. It was, it, it, that was neat. I don't know that people even realize that when Dennis was playing the principal building on Saved by the Bell, behind his desk on the set, he had framed UTC basketball team pictures. Yep, on the bookshelf. He changed it out each year. So I saw that team play a lot, and I had a lot of sentimental attachment when I was on the beat when Murray Arnold was there, and that team went 27-4 and that went to the NCAAs and beat NC State. In the early days of the free press, I was hanging around all the time and watching shoemate teams. Did you get a lot, I suspect you did, people trying to compare those three eras and maybe even by which team was better? And did you ever go back and see old tapes of some of those teams? And what did you think of them? Yeah, that's an ongoing discussion about comparing folks from different eras. Is Petty better than Earnhardt? Was Pearson better than Earnhardt? Is Jimmy Johnson better than Earnhardt? Was Gordon better? It's just so hard to compare different eras. And I don't know why we do it. Is it Michael Jordan versus LeBron or whatever the argument is, Kobe versus Michael, whatever the argument is. But I'm not so sure, and I would defend my group, the team that had Morgan and White and Wilkins and 
Morgan, and boy, I tell you what now, that bunch was really good. And I didn't see enough film on the Shoemate guys, although I've heard about them forever. I always had a really deep appreciation for what Shoemate did and what Murray Arnold did before me because that we definitely benefited from their success when we got there. Well, as a guy who's treasured that basketball history there, I appreciate the fact that you cherished it too, and you did all you did to keep that tradition going. So what's it like to be a coach going to a Final Four, and maybe when the last thing you want to be doing is watching somebody else's team play and rather be recruiting or whatever? Explain what it's like to be in that mess of thousands of coaches at a Final Four site. Well, to be honest, when I first started coaching, and for a long time after that, going to the Final Four was the best thing ever. There was a coach's hotel where almost all the head coaches stayed together. And literally everyone knew where the hotel was. The coaches would hang out in the lobby. Some of them wanted to hang out and wanted that adulation and people coming to see them. They wanted to kind of hold court and tell war stories. And some were a little bit more aloof. you just see them passing through through the lobby, but there was even an all-lobby team. They would vote each year on who spent the most time in the lobby. And there were some notorious ones like Lefty and some of those kind of guys. But I used to be really excited. I loved the Final Four, but it has changed. It's not the same, and some of that is social media. Some of that is just intense scrutiny. And I think the higher the salaries have gone, the less fun the Final Four is. But at one time, it really was one of the real highlights of each and every year to go there and see people maybe you didn't see all the time because if you think about it there was no zoom there was no skype there was no facetime there was no cell phone there were a lot of folks that that's the one time a year that you got to see them and visit with them and it's not like that anymore because you stay in constant contact with everybody so that part of it has changed but it's still a special event I still think the semifinals of the national championship, I think it's one of the great sporting event days, regardless of what sport we're talking about, when there are four teams there and four different fan bases and all the different colors and pageantry. I love the national semifinals. The Monday night game is always anticlimactic for me. I love the national semifinals still. Greg, did we wake you up? (laughs) Absolutely not, Mark. My cone of silence is out of respect for the great conversation between you and Mac. I'm just trying to stay out of the way. But while we're here, I'd like to remind everybody once again that Mac's new book is available online at macmccarthy.com. Now, Mac, so I do have a question. I got to go to one Final Four as a fan. My parents live up in Minneapolis, and I was living in Chattanooga and applied, and I got tickets to the one that ended up where Duke repeated and beat the Fab Five. So you get to walk through this lobby, you get to see these guys. Who is your all-time coach's team as you went to the Final Four? Oh, gosh. As an all-lobby team? As an all-lobby team, yes. Well, Wimp would have to be on there because Wimp loved holding court. And clearly I'm biased, but Sonny and Wimp together are pretty hard to beat. Lefty would definitely be on there trying to think who else would hold court pretty good. Some guys were coaches for a while, and then they were other places. George Raveling was one who commanded a big audience. Mm -hmm. 
and enjoyed the back and forth and seeing folks and could tell a lot of tales. That would be four of my five. I'll tell you who is underrated as an all-lobby guy, really as a storyteller, is Hugh Durham, too. Not only was he an underrated coach, but he was an underrated storyteller, too. He really was something special. And you mentioned Sonny, so I know there's a lot to pick from, but what is your favorite Sonny story? Sonny, there were so many good ones. Sonny was recruiting a kid in uh, southeastern Kentucky, and you can imagine what the situation was. Sonny was bound and determined to get this guy, and he went in there, and the family was very proper, so Sonny was very proper, and they started the in-home visit with a Bible verse, so Sonny picked out one, and he joined in and read a Bible verse. They decided they were going to have dinner, and Sonny was helping cook in the kitchen and all that. And so they got to the table, and Sonny blessed the food. In addition to the host, Sonny jumped right in there. And then they got to singing some gospel songs. Sonny joined right in. He's got a great voice, loves country music. So he joined right in there with a few gospel numbers. They went catching fireflies, lightning bugs. So Sonny jumped out there with the kids, and he had him a jar, and he was catching lightning bugs. And pretty soon, it got time to leave, and they said, well, you may as well stay, but we don't really have much room, and it wouldn't be appropriate for you to sleep with Junior, who was the prospect. You have to sleep with this little brother. So Sonny said, that's fine. That's no problem. Can't get out of here. Light's not good here out in the country anyway. I wouldn't be able to find my way out, so if it's okay, I'll do that. They jump into bed. He's on one side, and the little brother's on the other side. And all of a sudden, the little brother jumps out of bed and gets down on his knees beside the bed. Sonny does the same thing. On his side, he jumps down and gets on his knees. He says, I guess we're going to pray again to himself. The little boy looks at him and says, Coach Smith, my mom is not going to be happy with you. He said, how can you not be happy with me? I've done everything. I've read the Bible verse. I've said grace. I've chased the lightning bugs. I've sung the gospel music. I've done everything I can do. I helped cook dinner. He said, yeah, but we only got one slop bucket. It's on this side of the bed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The, the bigger question is, and you don't have to name the person, but did he get the recruit? No, he didn't. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's even the better kicker to the whole thing. That is, mm. And that, in a perfect segue, is probably the best time to say amen. Mac McCarthy, I can't thank you enough for your friendship, for you taking the time to be on this and to reminisce with you. Love to the girls from me, and can't wait to see you somewhere down the road. Ditto to all that. Thank you all so much for having me. We're back with you for our remaining moments on this edition of the Never a Bad Game podcast on Pod Topics. I'm Greg Thompson from Pod Topics, and it's been fun once again to be riding shotgun with your Never a Bad Game podcast host, Mark McCarter. And Mark, I've got to tell you, it was a real treat to be part of your interview with Mac McCarthy. And I can't wait to read his new book and explore his career a little bit more. And of course, You can get that book at MacMcCarthy.com. And as he related to us in the interview, he's had quite the charmed life in basketball. Oh, yeah. One of the really great guys. I do appreciate Mac joining me. As I said, the way that he cherished UTC basketball history that really started with what Leon Ford built in the 1960s and what Ron Shoemate continued with all that hype and success and Murray Arnold did. Mac even made sure I got to my first Final Four. I was 
living back in Chattanooga and helping a, a place called Creative Resources. We did a lot of stuff with UTC. We produced that video we talked about in the interview. And just somewhere in casual conversation, I got around to telling Mac I'd never been to a Final Four. I'd, I was always covering baseball at that time of year. I was at spring training, getting ready for the lookouts to get started, whatever. And so he just said, you know, I've got tickets. I'll take care of you. So he got me an extra ticket. And that was the tournament in Indianapolis where Arizona beat Kentucky in overtime in the championship game. North Carolina and Minnesota were in it. And I was in Hog Heaven. Finally, this is the bucket list deal. I'm finally at a Final Four. And who would have thought it 10 months later, I'd taken another newspaper job. And about my first week on the job, the editor calls me in and says, well, you need to start making your travel arrangements for San Antonio and get your credential for the Final Four. I said, you mean I'm going to cover it? He goes, oh, we cover it. Yeah, we need to cover it every year. You need to go. Okay, good deal. <laughs> so I went, I guess, for 11, maybe 12 of the next 13 years, covered the Final Fours and one of my favorite assignments. Well, I can tell just from the way you relate that story, it was like getting a lottery ticket, not only getting a job, but being able to go to an event that you really cherish and be able to see that and then be able to tell those stories had to be really special for you. Yeah, it's just a great atmosphere. And I think about one of the odd things is tip-off. And back when everybody still was carrying cameras around with flashbulbs, the tip would go up and flashbulbs would go off everywhere. And it was just almost a surreal out-of-body experience. And just so many good stories and, and so many great games. And just being a basketball guy and to be there, we were courtside seats on press row. I ended up at half court. I'd turn around and look and see people behind me like Bill Walton and these famous people are 10 rows behind me and I've got a better seat than they do. It was just so much fun. Well, was there a memory for you that really stood out during that time? I went to Memphis State for one year when it was still Memphis State. So the year that Memphis lost to Kansas, when Memphis just couldn't hit a free throw to save their lives, I kind of bled a little bit through that one. One maybe that sticks out as much as anything, I think it was 2000 in Indianapolis, and it was Florida playing Michigan State. And Michigan State had a guard named Mateen Cleaves, who was just a dynamic, fun player. Oh, yeah, I remember him, yeah. And he got kind of cheap-shotted by one of the Florida players and had to help Mateen off the floor and went to the locker room. And Michigan State, I think, had a lead, but it was starting to shrink. And earlier, midway in the second half, Mateen comes trotting out of the locker room and under the stands and onto the court, and the place just erupted. It was this almost this Willis-Reed moment, this injured player coming back he got back in the game. Michigan State held on the lead or came back. I don't know they were behind at the time and won the game. It was just so cool that a couple of years later, Mateen wound up here in Huntsville on the NBA D-League team. And so I got to reminisce with him some about that moment. A nice guy. I liked him a lot. Mm -hmm. I think the one really odd memory, and it has nothing to do with anything on the court, back again in Indianapolis, I think the 206 tournament, I took my wife, Patricia, with me. It was the first time she'd gone to a Final Four with me, and we managed to convince somebody at the NCAA to sell me a ticket. So she went along, and it was Florida, UCLA, LSU, George Mason that year. So we go up on Thursday night and check into the Marriott and go downstairs to the bar and immediately run into two old sports writers and 
we wound up sitting there complaining about people who handle our expense accounts and telling stories about our more well-lubricated members of our fraternity and some of their antics and things like that. So Patricia gets indoctrinated into life on the road with a sports writer. And then after the game at Final Fours, the media hotel always has a big ballroom and they open it up for the media after games and they have an open bar, there's an ice cream bar, there's omelet station, there's cold cuts, all kind of food, pizza. And guys would just sit there till like three in the morning and just telling stories and eating and having a few pops and, and just enjoying things. And I think that's the one where the hotel actually shut the lights out on us about three in the morning. But hardly anybody moved. We just sat there in the dark and kept telling our stories. And I think then Patricia even got the appreciation of what I love doing. Was it just because of the games? But it was that fraternity of the other writers and, and all the stories we got to tell. What a neat thing to be able to share that with her and for her to see that in person and see that that was a large part of your life. As you know, it's covering the event, it's telling the stories, but it's also sharing that with people who are doing it. And there's just something special about that, particularly at an event like the Final Four. It's really cool that you were able to have basically a last call in that ballroom during that event. Yep. And I guess before they shut the lights out on us, Greg, we probably ought to call last call on this podcast. My thanks go out to Greg Thompson again, joining me on this, producing it and making it so much fun. Certainly to my friend, Mac McCarthy, for him joining us. And thanks to you for listening. This has been Mark McCarter, and this is the Never a Bad Game podcast. Hope you'll join us for future episodes. Please share the word with your friends. Meanwhile, you can check out my blog post at neverabadgame.com and find information on purchasing my books there. Until next time, hope all your games are great.